0: Well, good morning, church. Uh, Let me just begin by saying thank you. Uh, Danielle and I felt so loved and cared for and supported as a variety of sicknesses, whatever they all were, uh, made their way through our home. um, Between Louise coming to the house and caring for our kids and others bringing meals to us and uh, just asking how we're doing. Uh, we, we just felt so loved, and uh, we truly uh, feel like this is our family. So thank you guys so much for supporting us. And uh, that actually ties in quite directly to the theme of this morning's passage in Matthew. Uh, William Temple, who's a former Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 20th century, uh, once said that the church is the only organization on earth that exists for those who are not its members. The church is the only organization on earth that exists for those who are not its members. Now, while we could point to, I think, a number of other organizations that exist for those who aren't its members, perhaps humanitarian aid organizations and so forth, Um, I think this statement is still so striking when it is applied to the church. What he's saying, I think, is that the church doesn't exist to preserve itself. Uh, It doesn't exist merely to survive, uh, but it exists for that which is not church. It exists for the world out there, and that's something I'd like to explore in greater detail this morning in Matthew 5. Um, So last week, as you recall, we looked at the famous Beatitudes, this poem which opens Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And in that message, we asked and hopefully began to answer the question, what is God's empire like? So what is God's kingdom, God's new administration? What is it all about? Now, this week, though, in the passage which comes immediately after, we're going to address the question, what are the humans who make up that empire? What what are they supposed to be like? And so, at this point, friends, if you haven't already, uh, I would invite you to turn to Matthew 5, verses 13 through 20, which is our text for this morning. I'll be reading from the ESV. Matthew 5:13 through 20 and as you are able would you stand for the reading of God's word <clears throat> Jesus says this to his disciples You are the salt of the earth But if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. So in this passage, uh, in which we learn what the humans who make up God's empire are to be like, Jesus uses two earthy images, the image of salt and that of light, the title of this sermon. Now, salt in the ancient world was used to preserve and enhance or season food. It was also used to cleanse or disinfect or heal wounds, Uh, And it was also used as fertilizer, salt in the soil to enhance, inoculate the earth, prepare it for farming. Salt, therefore, improves and preserves just about everything it touches. Okay? Now, light, on the other hand, light helps us see things back then and still today. Light helps plants grow. It enables our bodies to produce very important vitamins that help us live. And light ultimately makes our world a habitable place. So light, I would say, brightens and enlivens whatever it fills or touches. So what does it mean then to verse 20 possess a righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, a righteousness which constitutes the fulfillment of everything written in the law. Well, to Jesus, it means salt and light. It means existing in a way that improves preserves and enlivens every person and place we touch. Now, what I'd like to do over the next few minutes is simply examine this passage in its context. I want to draw out the meaning of Jesus' words and close with some words of application for us as a church moving forward. My hope in this message is that you'll better understand the the true function of the body of Christ. And that you'll be inspired to carry out that function this week, next week, and beyond. So that is my plan for this morning. Um, But before we really get into it, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you. Thank you for... What you have entrusted to us, this kingdom project, this co laboring with you, joining with you in bringing about new creation, Lord. Father, as we look forward to a new era, a new chapter for this church in this place, this region, I just pray that you would orient us anew, that you'd help us to focus on what really matters, to not be distracted, enslaved by things that we've done or that we've thought. Free us, Lord, to be your servants today and in the future. We love you and pray for your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as you can see, uh, this passage comes right after the Beatitudes, which open the Sermon on the Mount, um, and it comes right before a series of reinterpretations of certain topics from the Law of Moses. So, if you look at verses 21 through 48, uh, we're actually going to look at all those verses next week, and you get Jesus' deeper interpretations of laws concerning anger, Lust, divorce, and so forth. But before he gets into this reinterpretation of Torah, we get this passage about salt and light, which comes right after these blessings in the Beatitudes. I think what's striking about this is that Jesus blesses before he commands. Jesus offers words of grace before words of responsibility. He gives us divine support before He tells us to do things in His name, and I think that that is important. The main idea of this text, verses 13 through 20, as I see it, is that living as the salt of the earth and the light of the world fulfills the law and constitutes true and complete righteousness. Living as salt and light shows us what Jesus thinks true righteousness is, and that's the idea I'd like to explore as we walk through the text. So let's jump in then with verse 13 in Matthew 5. Before, uh, the first eight Beatitudes were in the third person, blessed are they, blessed are those, and then Jesus shifts to the second person, blessed are you looking at his disciples, and he goes on with this second person plural, this y'all, by saying, you are the salt of the earth. Now, In Greek, this can mean salt for the earth, salt in the earth. It really isn't a word of, it's more a case grammatically, and so we have to figure out what it really means. Um, Salt, as I said before, had a variety of functions in the ancient world. Uh, It was used commonly with food, and if it penetrated food and remained salty, it would enhance food, it would preserve it. And the same goes for wounds and wound care, it was used in medical practice. But also, as I mentioned before, it was used uh, with agriculture, It was often used uh, to inoculate Manure piles. You can think of compost piles today and adding certain elements to enhance the compost so it enhances the soil. Um, but it was used directly in the soil to prepare it for sowing. <clears throat> now, here we have the phrase salt of the earth, which in Greek, this is not capital E earth, like the planet name earth. This is ground, the word for ground or soil. Uh, As if you'd say, shovel some earth and put it on this pile. That that sense of earth. So to say you are the salt of, of the earth, the salt of the soil, it doesn't preclude those other meanings in the realm of food and medicine, but I think it really causes us to think of this agricultural use of salt. Salt which is put into the ground in order to create conditions for life and for health, and for flourishing, nourishment. Jesus doesn't say, you guys, you got to be salt for the earth. I command you to be this way. He says, you are. In other words, as long as they stay connected to Jesus, they function as salt for the earth. Meaning that which they touch, the spaces they enter, they, they improve They fertilize. They create conditions for life. That's what they are. He goes on to explain that if salt loses its saltiness, this is a tough word to translate. Uh, The ESV says lost its taste, but that really just sticks with salt as seasoning for food. It doesn't really relate to those other meanings. And the word is... (sighs) It's actually moranthi, which is where we get our word moron. Uh, if, if there's a lot of intelligence and then the intelligence fades away, making someone moronic, there's a fading of something that was potent. That, that is the word that's used. So if salt loses its, its potency, if it fades in its saltiness, how will it salt, as a verb, how will it salt anymore? In other words, if if salt loses its distinctive quality as salt, if the the sodium chloride is leached away and it ceases to be salty, it cannot accomplish its purpose, which is to enhance and preserve whatever it touches. If such a thing happens, if it loses its saltiness, it will be good for nothing uh, but to be thrown outside underfoot to be trampled by men. Now, friends, this is hard because uh, that is a worthwhile use of salt for us in Maine. We put salt right outside on the doorstep to be trampled underfoot by men. Uh, But that's not what what the gospel writer is saying here. The language is that of garbage, that of throwing something out so it is unusable uh, and it is refuse, it's trash. The idea is that if the disciples lose their distinctive, salty, Christ-connected quality, they will be useless in the work of the kingdom, which is to improve and enhance and create conditions for life in the world, to set up the new creation. If the disciples lose their distinctiveness and become just like their surroundings, they they will not be able to accomplish their purpose. After this, Jesus uses another image, a quite earthy one, verse 14. He says, you are, same structure in Greek, you are the light of the world. We have a different word for world here. Uh, this is Cosmos. This is John 3.16, For God so loved the world. This is Jesus came into the world, but the world did not know Him. They didn't accept Him. This is the world that is darkened by sin, the world that is fallen and broken, corrupt, in need of, of divine grace, that kind of world. This isn't really geographical world. This is the worldly world. It says, You are the light of, of, in, or for that world. Now, constantly in the Old Testament, we read about the law as a light. Your law is a lamp for my feet. You can picture ancient Israelites thinking of life as a journey, a a long walk they would take. And if the world is darkened by sin, the lights are off. And they could trip, they could fall, they could get hurt. And the law functions as a light, which illuminates their path so they can walk and live safely. Not only this, but often deeds of evil and abuse and violence were said to be done in the dark, in secret, where the perpetrators couldn't be held accountable, um, the the victimized couldn't be rescued. These, These deeds were done in the dark, and the lights were not turned on. So to say you are the light of the world, you are light for the world, I think suggests that the disciples function kind of like Torah would function for ancient Israelites. It would turn the lights on so people could live safely, avoid tripping in the ditches, and could journey through through life with virtue and health. But I think it also means that When the lights are flipped on, the deeds of evil are exposed. And those who continue to oppress the parties we heard mentioned in Isaiah, they will be held accountable, and the weak will be rescued. Along with this, I mentioned before that light, in a more general sense, light helps plants to grow. Light helps our bodies produce vitamin D. And so when the days get short in the winter, sometimes people get seasonal affective disorder. They don't have as much light. Light enables joy and life and health. It's a vital part of creation. Life makes the world a habitable, flourishing place. He says to his disciples, you are light for the world. He says a city which is atop a mountain. Think about Isaiah 2, the mountain of the house of the Lord being lifted up. Jerusalem, Mount Zion, shining bright. It's impossible for that city to be hidden. In other words, light needs to go places. (laughs) When someone lights a lamp, they don't put it under a bowl. They don't put it under a basket. If I were to take this candle and put it under a bowl... What would happen to the flame? Light exists for that which is not light. It it exists to penetrate the darkness and to, to light up the space so people can see and they can live. And the disciples are called light in this way. We get a pretty straightforward imperative in verse 16. Jesus commands them based on this, thus, therefore, let your light shine. Before all human beings, turn the light switch on so that they may see your beautiful lives, is really what it says, your attractive lifestyles, and that they may glorify and praise your Heavenly Father. The the salty, lit-up lives of the disciples are meant to catch the attention of those in the world And draw them like a light draws bugs in the summer, to draw them so that they will see the source of that light, which is the glory of God in heaven. Now, Jesus says all these things, and he said the Beatitudes before, and now he stops in verse 17. and He says, I don't want you to think, guys, that in what I'm saying, I'm trying to displace Or do away with the law. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not providing you a different law of Moses. Law 2.0. That's not at all what I'm doing. Rather, my words, what I've told you about salt and light, about God's empire which has come, my words are in direct alignment with the words of Moses. The words you know. He says, I've come to fulfill, to make full. The image of that bag of apples, half full, to make full. Some have argued to to set set it on its feet is kind of the language, to, to allow the law to stand and live and move and do what it's meant to do. That's why I'm here. Jesus, therefore, tells us that his teaching, his ministry, is not opposed to what we read in the Old Testament but is a true, deep, reflective, living interpretation of that law. He closes the passage in verse 20, <clears throat> introducing all these reinterpretations that come after, by saying to his disciples, I tell you, truly I tell you, he actually uses the word amen, amen I tell you, amen at the beginning, not at the end. Truly, I tell you that unless your righteousness, unless the the way that you live exceeds or transcends that of the scribes or Pharisees, you will never be part of my empire, my kingdom. The idea isn't that the disciples are to play the same game as the scribes and Pharisees, but to win at their game. That's not the idea. Sometimes the word exceeds makes us think this way, as though they're to uh, play righteousness on the same terms and just do better. That's That's not the idea. The idea is that they are to go about righteousness in an entirely different way, to transcend the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, who, as we'll see, they store up their righteousness so they can put it under a bowl. The disciples, rather, are to be righteous not for themselves, but for the world. To be righteous, truly righteous, in a way that is different from the scribes and the Pharisees. The idea here, friends, is that a truly Christian life is a life committed to improving the conditions of the world so that abundant, eternal life can grow. Or, put differently, living as the salt of the earth and the light of the world fulfills the law and means true and complete righteousness. Now, as I think about our church and its past, its present, its future, I've done a lot of thinking about The Sunday service, what we do here on Sundays, the Lord's Day. I've done a lot of thinking about what we do midweek, what is our mission, what is our aim as a church. And the elders, we've been working on vision statements, which we hope to have formalized soon. But as I reflect on this passage and on what our righteousness is for, what all of this work, the spiritual development, formation, what it's for. Friends, it's for the world. This organization exists for those who are not its members, (laughs) William Temple. The idea then is that on Sunday morning, we come to glorify God because God is worth it. Yes. But in so doing, we are energized, we are encouraged, we are stimulated, hopefully, so that we can go out between Sundays and be salt and light for the world. Sunday morning, I think, or whatever happens on Sunday, is is meant to be a kind of huddle. I truly don't think that this is primarily the day on which we build the kingdom. I think Sunday is the day when the kingdom builders come together and glorify God together and are stimulated and encouraged so that they can go out and build the kingdom midweek between Sundays, so that we can cultivate righteousness, not for us to be this frozen, chosen bunch, but so that we can share it with the world. It's it's a hard dynamic, friends, because I don't want to suggest that our worship of God is, is a means to another end. Our worship of God is an end in itself, but if done authentically it becomes a means to another end. That end being mission and outreach. To quote Temple again, the church, this body of believers, exists for those who are not its members. As we embrace then our present moment, and as we thrust forward into the future, may we never cease to be salt and light. Let's pray. Thank you for this word, Lord Jesus, this orienting word. I pray, Lord, that as we continue to move through this Sermon on the Mount, as we think of our identity as a church, that you would orient us according to your values that we'd be willing and open to go wherever you would have us go, to be whatever you'd have us be, Lord. Help us as we worship you to be spurred on to works of love and justice for the world, and that in so working, those outside our community would join us in that work. We love you and pray that you would be with us as we engage in this wonderful, Supper. Lord, supper together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.